A World Lost, Part 2. The Kershkan inventor spent the next two hours trying to make himself comfortable in a vehicle without seats designed for his body type. There was no way he could fit on the odd devices his host used to restrain themselves as the craft rocked and swayed, like large bowls with a curved wall on one side. They fit their stabilizing appendages through a hole in the small wall and bent their legs in half to rest on the ball part. Then a series of straps attached to the wall part held them securely. At a loss for how he could fit, Faratesh settled for standing next to a couple of the bull things and simply holding onto the straps with his arms. At first they rose slowly, steadily gaining altitude until they reached some predetermined point, and then there was the loud roar of a rocket and Faratesh was thrown back against the bulkhead. Fortunately, it was padded with something that arrested his impact gently and then molded around his body and head to hold him securely. Finally, the rocket leveled off and the G-forces diminished. Then the rotors picked up again and they began to land somewhere. Before they touched down, Farrakesh glanced out the window. It was an island, covered with several dome-shaped buildings that looked brand new. He could see one dome under construction, an odd cluster of metallic spindles and tendrils climbing up a half-built wall. As they came closer, he could see that the cluster was an assortment of small visitor machines slowly depositing material and forming a mobile scaffold as the swarm moved along. One dome split down the middle and the two halves fell away as they approached. The craft entered the space and landed there, the dome closing after them. When they eventually touched down, the wall released him and the visitors unfastened their belts, stood up, and left through the open door of the vehicle. The space outside seemed to be some sort of garage or hangar. There were more vehicles of assorted shapes and sizes and a variety of things that could be toolboxes or spare parts lying around. A visitor in a tan suit walked up to Faratesh and held out a garment of red cloth. On examining, it appeared to be one of the visitor suits built for Kershkins. What's this for? he asked, going over the material in his graspers. The visitor who gave him the suit whistled something and the machine he wore said, The rest of our base has our air. It's too big of a pain in the posterior to change all of them. So you get the suit instead. He gestured for Farrakesh to put it on, and after a couple more minutes of inspection, the Kershkin inventor complied. Though it took the aid of two more visitors for him to get it fully prepped and sealed. When he was sealed in to their satisfaction, they led him over to a panel on the wall. There were a pair of large hinges on one side, but it seemed to be welded to the wall itself until one visitor pressed a button on the panel and suddenly a seam appeared between the panel and the wall. Then detaching and swinging over to reveal a doorway into a small chamber which looked barely large enough to fit three of the visitors. On the far side of the chamber, who could see another panel, 
while the other two walls were opaque and unadorned. Celine stepped forward. Her translator intoned, Well, come on, as she stepped into the chamber. With some reservations, Farrakesh followed. After the two of them entered the small chamber, the door closed behind them, merging into the wall again. Celine checked Farrakesh's suit seals one last time and then gestured at a lens set into the ceiling. There was a hissing sound and the Kershian began to feel the sinuses in his respiratory tract expand as the air pressure around him decreased. Eventually, the hissing stopped and the visitor standing next to him started to undo the straps of her own suit. Marrakesh couldn't help himself from staring. He was about to see a visitor unclothed for the first time in his life. Celine removed the headpiece first. Her light spots were indeed underneath the black lenses but were reduced to a pair of narrow vertical ringed with green and mounted on white spheres that rotated in sockets set between her mouth parts and ears. The ears were triangular flaps that swiveled upward and directed their concave sides in his direction, while the two mouth parts protruded forwards and opened horizontally when she spoke, revealing a double set of pointed bony protuberances. Farrakesh was unsettled for a moment before remembering that it would be ridiculous for a prey species to evolve sentience. She was mostly black in coloration, but with a white stripe going between her eyes and down over her mouth parts, continuing below and under her suit. Then he noticed that her hide was not smooth like his own, but covered in moss-like bristles and growth. He wondered if it was part of her body or some form of symbiotic growth as she removed the rest of her suit. The color pattern continued the rest of the way down her body. With the front side of her body and her hands in the tip of her stabilizing appendage colored white but the rest black. The only clothing she wore underneath the suit were a strap about the upper part of her torso that seemed to be intended to hold up two round protuberances about a hand's breadth in diameter that grew from her front, and a belt just above her legs that had attachment for an assortment of pouches and tools and held a small strap of cloth onto the area where her legs joined. Celine hung her outer suit to a hook set in the side wall and touched the door to, on the opposite wall. A light turned to green and the door unmelted from the wall and swung open. The visitor stepped through, followed by an anxious Farrakesh. They walked down a narrow metal corridor illuminated by dim lights set into the ceiling. Once, he spotted a portrait of an alien landscape covered in green with a blue sky and some figures that he assumed were visitors of some sort but he didn't have time to examine it before they moved on to the main compartment. It was a large open space with a glass window set into the ceiling, giving a view of the ruddy sky outside. To the sides were alcoves with furniture of assorted types, something he assumed was a kitchen, 
and one wall dominated by a long black panel that most of the furniture seemed to be facing. On one table, he saw a glow painting suspended in midair. He reached out to touch it, and his arm passed through it like there was nothing there but empty space. It's not one of your lantern shows. Just more advanced, Selene explained. It reassured Faratesh a little to know that the illusory globe was just a trick of the light, but the reminder of the visitor's superiority still irked him. I suppose this might be a good starting point, she continued, opening a panel with several buttons and dials. This, as you probably figured out, is your planet. Selene depressed one button and the small seas and dressed land were replaced by a world with massive seas separating three large masses of green and brown land with white caps at the poles. As he looked more closely, he could spot splotches of gray focused on the coastlines but extending web-like sinews further inland. As the globe rotated, he saw the splotches light up and realized that they were massive cities. Well, this is land. The homeworld of my ancestors known as... Her translator left out the next word. From her mouth parts, it sounded something like... About 2300 of our years ago. About a hundred of our generations back then before medical science extended them. Then she turned the dial slowly and he watched the cities expand. When they discovered your long waves, they could suddenly communicate over far greater distances. The far side of the continent or a boat far from shore could be reached as if it were merely the other side of the street. But it wasn't enough. Then suddenly, a fireball shot up from the largest landmass and left a small blinking light flying around the equator, later joined by more lights from both that landmass and the second largest one. They figured out how to build and deploy automated relay stations that could receive and resend messages from one side of the planet to another. She pressed a button and a beam of light shot up from the ground on the second largest mass and bounced off a series of the blinking in orbiting lights until it landed somewhere on the far side. This ease of communication enabled the population to expand across the globe until eventually the planet's resources were depleted and they had to search elsewhere. The view zoomed back, showing the land to be just one of several planets orbiting a yellow-white star. They found the resources they sought out on the lifeless planets and smaller rocks around their own star. And by then, their knowledge of biology had advanced to the point where they could create servants to go out and harvest those resources for them. And so they made my ancestors, the parahumans. Suddenly, the image changed completely. Instead of a solar system, the projection displayed a room filled with machinery. Large glass cylinders leaned against the walls while smooth-skinned bipeds with only small growths on their heads and wearing long white coats walked by.
Each one of the cylinders, a machine arm laid down muscle and sinew in layers onto a figure that Faratesh realized with shock was a visitor, or parahuman, as Selene had called them. They used us as slaves until one day we rebelled. Now it showed a mob of parahumans of all shapes and sizes rushing at a couple of the bipeds who were dressed in armored bodysuits and shooting frantically with bulky guns. We succeeded, and for a time we tried to build our own civilization among the lifeless rots of the solar system. It changed again to a bearing, slightly misshapen orb with gray cities spotting the surface and vehicles of various sizes, some of which seemed to be as large as small towns flitting around it. But eventually, we decided that we had to leave and find our own homeworld out among the stars. As he watched, a large ship consisting of two rings connected by a long pole-shaped section with a bell shape at one end was constructed and launched. Bright fireballs pushing it along. As it turned out, our timing couldn't have been better. The projection returned to land again. Barely more than two decades after the first colony ship was launched, they received a message stating that land had been attacked. A large object flashed across the projection and hit the planet square on. There was a massive explosion that swallowed up a quarter of the planet's surface. The seas vanished and the green burned away, leaving nothing but ashen gray. So far as we can tell, they were machines designed to home in on lawn wave sources, and destroy them. It must have taken decades for humanity's long waves to reach one of their listening posts, and it may have been centuries before they reached the system, but regardless, they came. After turning land into a planet-sized tomb, they deployed hunting machines that annihilated every last sign of human or parahuman inhabitation in the solar system. They even managed to intercept one of the colony ships. Farrakesh looked on, horrified. So, the long waves bringing planet-killing monsters from the stars? Who would even build such things? Selene shrugged. There's a lot of hypotheses, but the generally accepted one is that the machine's creators believe that other sevient life presents a threat to themselves. They're just... Afraid. The Kershchen looked through his suit's light amplifying lenses at the strange creature who lived in a dark, cold world that he needed special clothing just to survive in, and who needed her own special suit to live in his world. He couldn't imagine why they would want to come here, especially if they could just destroy his kind from space if they were concerned about attracting the wrong kind of attention. So what are you doing here anyway? Couldn't we potentially be a threat to yourselves? Why help us? I'll be frank, the parahuman leader replied. We've explored many star systems and colonized hundreds of planets that were close enough to land that we could survive without these suits. But we've also passed over many worlds that were close but beyond the reach of our current technology. Some of these worlds are pretty close to this one, but they lack sapient life. 
We think that if your people joined our empire, we could colonize those planets and grow far beyond our current grasp. I see, replied Faratesh. And the reason you didn't simply invade us outright instead of giving us all this technology safe for what you prescribe? It's easier to hold on to people who want to be a part of your empire than if they resent you, especially when you're giving them entire planets, Selene concluded, shutting off the projection.